Welcome to the New Zealand China Council podcast. I'm Jason Young, Director of the New Zealand Contemporary China Research Centre. Today on the Council's podcast platform, we are pleased to share a webinar organised by the Centre with Professor David Dollar, Senior Fellow in the John L. Thornton China Centre at Brookings Institute, on the challenges for the Chinese economy in light of the global recession and trade war. Professor Dollar is a leading expert on China's economy and US-China economic relations. From 2009 to 2013, Dollar was the US Treasury's economic and financial emissary to China, based in Beijing, facilitating the macroeconomic and financial policy dialogue between the United States and China. So we chose as the title for this challenges for China's economy in light of the pandemic and the trade war. But as I was writing out notes about what I really thought was important, I realized that probably three quarters of it is really domestic challenges. And I think that's the key thing China faces. And I'm, you know, I'm going to go through what I think is important, but about three quarters is domestic challenge. And then I'll bring in the additional complication that comes from the external environment. And I want to leave plenty of time for questions because I think there are interesting foreign policy issues and U.S. New Zealand issues, uh, and I want to leave space for us to take up whatever you're interested in. I mean, as background, you all know the basic story: China's grown at 10% for about 40 years, really raised the country from extreme poverty to middle income, but it's quite naturally. Quite natural for growth to slow down at this stage. As you go from low income to middle income, we have this convergence process. Poor countries that integrate with the global economy are able to grow well. Yeah, you know, we use the phrase catch up or convergence. That's slightly misleading, and then it takes an awfully long time to actually converge. And not that many countries make it to high income. I think the transition from low income to middle income. We have lots of historical examples. We do not have so many examples going from middle income to high income, and and that's definitely the challenge that China's facing now. So I want to go into what I think are some of the key components of why China is naturally slowing down. Some of that natural slowdown may be more acute in China than in previous historical cases like South Korea or Taiwan. For a variety of reasons, mostly domestic,、uh, but we can also think about policies、uh, that would help China mitigate some of these problems or weaknesses. So first, I want to emphasize demographics. You know, Chairman Mao was a big believer in having a large, rapidly growing population, and so there was a big expansion of China's population during the 1960s、uh, into the 1970s. And then, when economic reform began under Deng Xiaoping, around the same time, China also introduced the one-child policy. Now, as countries grow, as income per capita grows, it's natural for fertility to come down. Fertility dropped a lot in South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, without the one-child policy. So. I'm not going to take a position on exactly how much influence the one-child policy had compared to other forces, but clearly fertility dropped very dramatically in China. Population, the the birth rate dropped very considerably, and this created this demographic dividend 
you know, where that large population growth from the 60s and into the 70s, you know, they were coming into the workforce in the 1980s and 1990s. So you had very rapid growth of the labor force. And that was one positive impetus for growth in China. But what's happened now is, you know, because of the drop in fertility, you know, that demographic dividend naturally comes to an end. So China's reached a critical moment where the working age population is peaked, is starting to decline, and you're gonna have you know, very dramatic aging. And aging is happening obviously in a lot of societies around the world, but the transition is gonna be particularly rapid in China. Uh, recently finished this book with economists at Peking University called China 2049. And the UN projections out to 2049 is that the population 65 and older will basically double from 200 million to 400 million over that period. And, and this is a period where the overall population is stabilizing and is then gonna fall. And more importantly, the labor force is gonna start to fall. And then there are gonna be twice as many retired people. And the biggest increase is gonna be in the 85 year old and over cohort. They're gonna more than triple from fewer than 50 million today to 150 million in 2049. So those are very dramatic changes. And I think they're gonna affect the growth rate uh, in a number of different ways. You know, the, as I said, the labor force is gonna start to decline. It's hard to maintain rapid growth when the labor force is declining. And on the other hand, they're gonna have to devote a lot of resources. We, you know, remember economic growth is really all about human welfare. Point of it all is to make people's lives better. So they're going to have to put a lot of resources into taking care of this aging population. Uh, and that's going to uh, be a big claim on resources. So I think that the demographic challenge in China is, is very serious. Now that leads to a second issue or challenge I want to mention, and one that if addressed could potentially affect my first point about demographics. So the second point I would argue is that the, the problems of aging at the moment are compounded by rural urban divides that are still very severe in China. You're all familiar with the household registration or HUCO system. You know, up until recently or up until now, basically, people have been registered either as urban or rural. And at this point, still only about 40% of the population is registered as urban. And China has allowed you know, rural residents to come to cities to work. Uh, and there are hundred, literally hundreds of millions of migrant workers. When you add them in, the actual urbanization rate in China is about 60%. You know, what that suggests is about a third of the urban population consists of migrants who have rural registration. And that registration system basically means that that large chunk of the labor force does not have full access to public services. It's a very complicated issue. Migrant workers who are on formal contracts uh, have pretty good rights in terms of access to benefits, but about two thirds of migrant workers do not have such contracts. 
so there's a lot of ad hocery. It's not a desperate situation where every migrant worker is without access to health care or pension uh, or education for their children, but it's a hodgepodge of different regulations that certainly leads to what is essentially discrimination against the migrant workers. So that HUCO system, I think, first of all, it, it affects how aging is occurring in China. So you'll find a lot of rural registered families where the grandparents have stayed on the farm, so to speak, and they have to stay there in order to maintain their rights over using land. They often rent it out. You, you go to a lot of Chinese village, villages, there are only a few active farmers and they rent the land from many other families. So you've got grandparents at the house and oftentimes the third generation. So you've got school-aged children and both working age parents have gone to cities, in many cases, different cities. The husband might be working construction, living on a construction site. A lot of women are working either in factories where they stay in dormitories or probably more commonly now the service sectors, you know, hotels, big restaurants, they also have their dormitories. You know, so, so it's a complex family situation. And my intuition is that as that, that grandparent generation is aging, you're gonna wanna have more fluidity in people's arrangements. You know, some of the retirees are gonna wanna move to the city where they have better access to healthcare and many things are easier. On the other hand, you might have some migrant workers who've done 20, 30 years of work in the city, and they'd actually like to move back to the countryside where the cost of living is lower, but they might be worried about the quality of healthcare or do they actually have access to healthcare? So I think the solution here is to really finally abolish this HUCO registration system and unify the education, health, pension systems so that you actually have more mobility. And I think this will be important both for the human dimension of how are you taking care of old people in this aging society, but it's also gonna to lead to more efficient use of labor uh, because labor is becoming a scarce factor of production in China. <clears throat> and the system I've described throws a lot of sand in the wheel of the normal functioning of the labor market. It had a certain logic in the export oriented phase and it's worked reasonably well. But I think the way things are changing now, China will benefit by having much more easy labor mobility than it's had up till now. Now, the third issue I wanna raise, I'm gonna kind of cheat and really combine two issues into one in the interest of simplicity. So I would say the third issue or problem they're facing is, I mean, a simple way to sum it up for economists would be, sharply diminishing returns to investment or diminishing returns to capital. You know, China has relied very heavily on investment and capital accumulation as the source of growth. You know, there's kind of a simple logic of what I'm going through. You know, growth depends on expansion of the labor force. You know, that's now come to an end. It depends on increasing the capital stock, but there are diminishing returns and they've now set in pretty aggressively. 
And then the third thing I'm going to get to in a moment is aside from labor and capital, we have technological advance or, or productivity growth. And for a long time, the return to investment in China was very good. I mean, I think that was one of the advantages of the export-oriented model is it really kept the return to capital high. And I like to, to see this in one simple statistic. You know, if you look at the total leverage in the economy, and it doesn't matter whether you include or not the government, but it's a little bit simpler. You know, take the government out and look at the corporation, corporate and household debt relative to GDP. And in China, that was remarkably stable from the period when China joined the WTO all the way up to the global financial crisis. Actually, it had been stable in the years immediately before WTO leading up to WTO because China did a lot of the trade reforms in advance of joining the WTO. So when you see that stability and leverage and, and at the same time, China had very rapid growth of credit, expansion of investment, but that leverage ratio was very stable. And that says to me that most of the investment was high productivity. And if, if, if firms are borrowing and increasing their debt, but they're making good investments in generating GDP, then debt to GDP tends to be stable or maybe slowly rising over time. And you see that in China up to the global financial crisis. And then since the global financial crisis, you know, China's had a big increase in credit. It actually ratcheted up investment. A lot of that was channeled to different types of infrastructure. So China has all this wonderful infrastructure and I'm sure some of it's high return. Actually, I, I financed a little bit of that as World Bank country director in uh, China and everything I financed was high return, I can assure you. Uh, but what we're seeing more, that, I'm, I'm proud of what the World Bank did in China, but that was a bit of a joke, okay? But uh, just looking at a macro level, you know, what you see uh, starting shortly after the global financial crisis, 2008, 2009, you start to see this very dramatic increase in the leverage ratio in China. And that's suggesting that, you know, there's a lot of debt financing investment, but it's not having the same growth impact. You know, so you're increasing uh, the numerator, but you're not having that much effect on the denominator. Uh, and so you start to see this rise in leverage and that's an indicator of risks building up in the financial system that you're financing investments that are not really yielding so, such a good return. And I think Chinese are aware of that. So they're trying to rein in the growth of credit and uh, in, you know, at least up until we got to this pandemic in the recent years, investment has not been growing that rapidly in China. Credit has not been growing as rapidly in, as in the past. They actually stabilized the main measure of leverage for a couple of years before the pandemic. Uh, and so that's a reflection that the policymakers understood that investment was not generating as much return and they had to take care of these risks in the financial system. But then that becomes a very powerful factor pulling down the rate of growth so that they went from that 10% rate of a long period 
down to more like 6% in the period right before the, the pandemic hit. So if investment is not having as much return, then really your best source of maintaining a healthy rate of growth is innovation. And you hear lots of talk about China trying to become a more innovative society. And here I would say, you can find a lot of inputs on the innovations front. So China's spending a lot of money in R&D. They're churning out a very impressive number of scientists, technical people, engineers coming out of the education system. But frankly, we don't really see that much output from their research effort. We don't see many globally competitive companies, high-valued patents, and most importantly, productivity growth, total factor productivity growth has slowed in China. Uh, we don't see any tendency for it to be picking up as they put more resources. So I, I know you've had a recent discussion about this, the new catchphrase in China, dual circulation. And I'm not gonna say too much about that. You, you've heard about it. I think the phrase is a little bit confusing uh, but certainly one aspect of it is they want to rely more on domestic economy, you know, domestic circulation. And I think the part of that that's about domestic demand, that's very healthy. If China relied more particularly on household consumption, I think that would be uh, make their growth more sustainable. Uh, but another part of that domestic circulation is they'd like to see more innovation and productivity growth generating their own technology, becoming less dependent on foreign technology. And I think that's a reasonable aspiration. And then the question is, what tools do you use to meet it? And as they prepare their next five-year plan, I think there's a real debate going on. At the risk of oversimplification, you know, there's one group that would very much like to rely on industrial policy tools, you know, this is the spirit of the Made in China 2025 program. Let's pick some specific technologies, subsidize state enterprises to do the research, make them into globally competitive companies. I don't. I think history suggests that's not likely to be a successful uh, productivity path, and it's certainly going to generate increasing tension with trading partners. But there is a different way to go, and plenty of economists in China who support this, and that would be focusing more on the fundamentals, strengthening intellectual property rights, investing more. They put a lot into the universities, but they could do more to enhance the universities. They've got, they're generating lots of scientists and engineers, but I think the quality of some of the universities uh, is somewhat suspect. And then I would argue that keeping the economy open, in fact, making the economy increasingly open for investment and trade, collaboration, research collaboration, et cetera. I think that's a crucial part of the innovation ecosystem. Uh, so I, I'm gonna be watching as they work on the five-year plan and we get more concrete details. Are they opening up the economy more and creating opportunities for trade and investment, or 
Are they becoming more protectionist in a sense, focusing more on import substitution? Uh, and frankly, no one's made that work particularly well. So looking at the domestic landscape, you know, I think all the main sources of growth face some challenges in China, you know, starting with decline of the labor force owing to demographics, diminishing returns to investment, uh, weaknesses up until now in the innovation ecosystem. And I guess on innovation, I should be very clear to recognize they've had some impressive accomplishments. Their developments in fintech, in certain uh, tech areas like AI, drones, you know, they definitely had their successes. It's just that we don't see any enhancement of the overall productivity growth in the economy, just the opposite. Uh, by some measures, overall productivity growth has been negative uh, in recent years, even before the pandemic hit. So, so we don't see kind of across the board productivity growth uh, commensurate with the effort they're making in order to enhance their innovation. So now fourth and last, let me just then bring in the external environment. And, and I really do think the domestic challenges are paramount and China, its success or failure will depend primarily on how it addresses domestic challenges. But the external environment is certainly not friendly for China right now. Uh, you've got the global recession, so demand for their products, their exports have held up fairly well, but it's really hard to see it as a growth sector in the next few years. And in particular, the US trade wars had a big effect on China. I wouldn't exaggerate it, but it, it, it's definitely had a negative effect on China. The US has a lot of issues with China. I think the important ones are market access, intellectual property rights protection, forced technology transfer, the role of state enterprises in the economy. In the modern world, an economy like the US trades primarily on the basis of intellectual property. And so intellectual property rights protection is, is an important issue. Now, diffusion of technology to less developed countries is a natural process. So don't forget, we, we don't wanna have perfect permanent protection of intellectual property rights. We don't wanna give a patent forever and we don't wanna have patents so tight that you can't make some kind of competing and similar product. Uh, so we need to find a balance where there's opportunities for developing countries to borrow and technology and adapt it in the way we've seen previously with South Korea, Taiwan and others but we do need some fundamental protection of intellectual property rights in order to have an incentive for innovation. And certainly a lot of international firms, you know, have become quite frustrated waiting for this to improve in China. Certainly President Trump became frustrated. He's imposed 25% tariff on about half of the US imports from China. But I would argue this was not a particularly smart tactic uh, and it hasn't really achieved very much. President Trump put a lot of emphasis on the trade balance, but tariffs are not an effective way to deal with the trade balance because they end up decreasing your exports for a variety of reasons. And so you, you have gotten the predictable effect that US imports 
been pushed down a little bit compared to what would have happened otherwise, but US exports have actually been pushed down similarly or even more. Uh, so the US trade deficit keeps rising, which is not a surprise to an economist. We've seen a little bit of trade diversion as a result of these tariffs. Uh, so the US is importing somewhat less from China. On the other hand, the US is importing a lot more from Vietnam, Indonesia. And I think in shaping this trade war, American policymakers did not give enough appreciation to the role of global value chains. China used to be at the end of value chains with the labor intensive assembly, but they've moved into the middle of many value chains, producing sophisticated components and some machinery. So now the US is importing certain things from Vietnam. Meanwhile, China is exporting more components, more machinery to Vietnam. So China's exports have held up pretty well. The US overall imports have not been affected. And US trade deficits, as I said, has, has not gone down. Uh, so that approach has not really generated much. Certainly, it's generated losses. It hasn't really generated any benefits on either side. And then you could argue that it did bring China to the table to negotiate this phase one trade deal. But that's a strange animal. China agreed to buy an additional 200 billion of American goods and services over two years. Seemed very unrealistic right from the start. That, that would have required a 40% increase in US exports this year and an additional 40% on top of that next year. We do not usually see macro variables grow like that. But of course, what's happened is uh, US is exporting less to China, basically, you know, if, if you look at those, what we call purchase targets in that phase one agreement, China is only buying about one half of what it would need to meet the purchase targets. So, so that, that's definitely not working out. Now, I would also say part of that external problem for China is that in addition to the trade war, you also have technology measures coming from the US. And I think it's important to keep these distinct from the trade issues. So the US has national security concerns around Huawei, around TikTok. You can argue about the rationale of particular decisions, but basically some of these measures, export controls, investment controls, some of these are aimed at national security issues. Uh, and it, it's worth keeping those somewhat separate in your mind. Because now we've got President Biden elected and it's natural to wonder what's gonna happen. I think President-elect Biden and his team do not have a lot of respect for the tariffs or for President Trump's economic policies toward China. But given American politics, it's gonna be hard for them to undo that quickly is certainly not a priority. I mean, coming in, Biden's priorities will clearly be getting the COVID-19 pandemic under control, stimulating the economy and coming out of recession. Uh, there are other important issues, you know, immigration, racism. Good news, President Biden wants to, us to get back into the Paris Agreement and focus on climate change. He'll rejoin the World Health Organization 
can go out and he'll consult with allies like New Zealand and other partners uh, and bring the United States back into a more multilateral framework. I think that's all very positive, but it's hard to see that in the first year or so, there's gonna be much room for negotiating economically with China. What I've heard from Chinese academics and retired policymakers is that you know, China is willing to negotiate over these structural measures in return for the US ratcheting down those tariffs. But a lot of these officials in the Biden administration are gonna be veterans of the Obama administration. And they remember the economic dialogue, which frankly did not achieve very much during eight years of President Obama. So you, won't, you wouldn't see a quick agreement where the US jumps into an economic dialogue with China, raising hopes that it would reduce the tariffs because the professionals on the Biden administration side will go in with a lot of skepticism and they're gonna to wanna to see some real action from China before they're likely to believe that we can negotiate some kind of deal. So, so looking more over a four year term, maybe as you get into the second and third year, there's some scope for US-China negotiations to you know, really put an end to the trade war, but probably keeping some of that technology oriented control in place. In the same way, maybe in this, by the time you get to the third year, maybe Biden will be ready to consider rejoining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, particularly if he hears that from allies. He's gonna, he says he's gonna go out and consult with others about dealing with China and global trade issues and other matters. If he hears consistently the countries, you know, miss the United States involvement in these trade agreements, you, know, you you just signed RCEP, congratulations. I think that makes sense. We had the Trans-Pacific Partnership going into effect. The US is absent from both of these agreements. I think President-elect Biden, you know, he will hear from allies that it's important for the US to get back in these agreements, but that's gonna be very controversial in American politics. Uh, so don't expect that to be one of the, the first things that they do. So I'm gonna stop here. And as I said, most of the focus was on the domestic challenges. I, I always remain cautiously optimistic about China. Uh, I think the logic of dealing with the aging problem is very compelling. Breaking down the rural urban divides will help deal with that aging problem, both the social dimension and also the declining labor force. They seem serious about maintaining financial stability, and that does force them to rely more on innovation. And there certainly is some constituency for focusing on intellectual property rights, education, opening the economy, the classic route to innovation. And I think China recognizes they face a difficult external economic environment, and they have a reasonable expectation that things will be a little bit more stable under Biden, but they don't have any wild expectations that US-China economic relations are gonna improve dramatically. So I'll stop there, Jason, and look forward to questions. Uh, thank you, Professor Dollar. That was a, um, a very comprehensive talk ranging from the demographic uh, challenges China faces, the rural urban divide, 
uh, innovation, technology, finance, and then uh, also bringing in some of the external challenges. Uh, we've got some uh, questions coming through, uh, but I think uh, one of the ones which really interested me is this ongoing challenge that China faces with the rural urban divide. And so you talked about the hukou system and the household residency system, but we could also look at something like the land system where urban China and rural China have, have fundamentally different land tenure systems. One is state land, one is collective land, and it arguably prevents any type of nationwide utilization of, of land in China. And also means that people who migrate to the cities are now wanting to maintain their rural status so that they have some social insurance or social security. So this idea of reforming and I guess harmonizing the institutions of urban and rural China has been around for quite a while and has and scholars such as Tsai Feng from um, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences have been advocating that these types of reforms are needed to create uh, a more efficient market economy within China. But there always seems to be uh, tinkering rather than a fully fledged reform. So, so what needs to happen in China to move towards a more uh, comprehensive reform? So first, uh, thank you, Jason. That's an excellent point that the land reform would have to go hand in hand with really breaking down the rural urban hukou divide. You know, the example I gave of that three generation family where the grandparents you know, have stayed on the farm and and uh, partly of that is kind of a one side of the equation is it might be hard for them to move to the city and get access to services, housing, et cetera. But the other side of that is if they left the land, then the land would be reallocated without compensation. And so I think that is very powerful. Uh, and, and, and you're right, they would have to tackle the land together with the, you know, with the hukou issue. Now, I do think the, um, you know, being an economist, I, I do think economic pressure has a lot of effect. So I know I, I have a lot of respect for Tsai Fong's work, and I know he's been advocating for this for a long time. But I think if you go back, I don't know, 10 plus years, I would say it was primarily a social argument saying this is an unfair system. It's kind of inhuman breaking up families like this and uh, migrants are second class, et cetera, et cetera. But it actually had a certain economic logic in those fast growing cities on the coast could get an endless supply of low cost labor. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now I think the economic situation's changed. Labor's gonna become scarce. Uh, not only is the country aging, but cities like Shanghai actually have a distinctly higher average age. So, so, you know, Shanghai is on its way to being, you know, a, a city of old people, basically. And I think the public attitude toward having more migrants will change as you need more people to take care of you, basically. You know, so I think the, you know, I think it would be hard for these flagship coastal cities to grow well at all without more migrants. Uh, and I think that potentially can change the calculation. 
Great, thank you. Um, and we have a, a question uh, now on the Belton Road Initiative. Um, and so there's been, uh, as in many parts of the Asia Pacific or Indo-Pacific, uh, down in New Zealand and the Pacific Islands and Australia, um, all around the region, there's been a lot of discussion and talk about the Belt and Road Initiative. And so people are trying to figure out, um, A, what it is, and then B, how effective it has been at, I guess, uh, internationalizing the Chinese economy and building up that connectivity. Um, or or uh, people have also given it more of a strategic lens. You know. So have, what, what's your view on the Belt and Road Initiative? Right, so I see it primarily economic as primarily economic. I think it's clever branding on the part of Xi Jinping. You know, he gave these two speeches in 2013 about restoring the old overland routes through Central Asia, the Silk Roads, and then coming up with this idea of a maritime route, which if you look at a map, it's really the most traveled sea route in the world, basically coming south from China through the South China Sea, Straits of Malacca, Indian Ocean, Red Sea onto Europe. Um, but in my writings, I've emphasized that, you know, there are a lot of problems getting data, but to the extent we can get data, I would argue it's, prim it's a global program of infrastructure. You know, it's primarily about financing transport and power infrastructure. It's global. So, you know, big chunk of the money is going to Africa and mostly to countries that have nothing to do with the geography I just mentioned. So, you know, Nigeria, some other Western African countries like Ghana, South Africa and Zambia in the South, you know, all, all over the African continent, you've got significant economies borrowing Brazil and Latin America. Uh, and then you definitely have countries that are part of that geography I just mentioned. Iran is a big borrower, Indonesia, uh, significant Malaysia, Pakistan. So it's, it's an interesting collection of countries. I, I do think that many of the projects are gonna work out because these countries need infrastructure and China can build infrastructure. The terms mostly are not as generous as Western ODA, but there's severe limits on how much Western ODA there is. The terms are generally better than what most of these countries can get from private international investors. You know, I was looking recently, some of the African countries which have loans from China at about 5% per year, you know, it's flexible, it's LIBOR plus a spread. They're bonds are now trading at the equivalent of 12% interest. So if Zambia wants to get new money, it has to pay 12% on the international market. Well, you know, our interest rates are, are zero and many countries are negative. So money is not cheap, you know, for Zambia and many other poor countries. So I think the Chinese program is viewed positively by quite a few developing countries. There's definitely been some hiccups. You had that port project in Sri Lanka. Uh, you had the um, rail project in Malaysia where after Mahathir was reelected, he renegotiated all that and changed it. The Chinese were quite practical and flexible about that. So I don't subscribe to this idea of debt trap diplomacy. 
I think there are some small vulnerable countries like Laos and Sri Lanka, but most of the countries I've mentioned are pretty substantial countries. They have agency. A lot of them are democracies. Uh, and yeah, I think it's a little presumptuous for Western, you know, United States in particular telling countries not to borrow from China for infrastructure when we're not providing anything com competitive. Uh, and you could get the World Bank and others seriously back in the infrastructure, but that doesn't seem to be happening and the resources are not being increased. So what, you know, what I hear from developing countries in Southeast Asia, Latin America, Africa, is they wanna have relations both with China and with the United States and the other Western economies. Seems perfectly reasonable. Thank you. Um, you talked about the financial sector uh, and some of the challenges in the Chinese economy. Uh, so we've got a question here about, um, I guess, potential triggers or what people should look out for uh, about whether or not China would be moving towards any type of economic crisis. Uh, and we've seen, you know, the Asian financial crisis. We saw many of the rapid uh, development, developing countries in East Asia uh, come off that rapid growth quite quickly, whereas China seems to be slowing its economy. So, so what, would, what should we be looking for in terms of triggers for economic crises? Well, I thought you were going to ask more kind of what are indicators yeah. of impending crisis and you should get out. <laughs> um, but we can talk about triggers as well. Uh, I was gonna say that I think China has pretty effective capital controls, but having said that, there are always ways around them. So I think, and you can estimate, you know, there are you know, private analysts who estimate what is the kind of secret capital inflow or outflow, you could call it, uh, you know, hot money or whatever. And I think in periods of stress, you see a big increase in net outflows, particularly the not, not authorized net outflows. So kind of inferred net outflows by looking at reserves and other banking data. And, and I think the smart money, you know, it's, it's always, it's, you know, when countries have these financial crises, it's nice to blame the foreigners, but it's your own domestic wealthy people who get their money out first and who know what's going on, you know? So when I see, any increase in the, the kind of hot money flows out of China. I figure it's the wealthy Chinese who must know pretty well, you know, various issues and problems are coming. And, and the good news is right now, the money's going the other way. And that may just be because the US and so many other advanced economies are in trouble. There's quite a bit of money that seems to be flowing into China. The currency is appreciating, you know, things look pretty good right now. Uh, so if, if, if there were uh, problems developing in the banking system, I think you would see the opposite. I think you'd see outflows and depreciation of the currency. Thank you. Um, and I have a question on uh, the environment. So you mentioned uh, the Paris Agreement and, and the US uh, rejoining the Paris Agreement. But we've also had uh, President Xi Jinping and making statements about China being carbon neutral by, I think it was 2060. 
Uh, and there's a lot of you know ecological civilization. There's a lot of greening talk about green cities. Um, so do you see that the environmental uh, <laughs> policy will play a big part in China's the, the new engines of Chinese economic growth, or is this more of a challenge for China? I mean, obviously China is still the world's largest carbon emitter. Right, so I think a lot of that talk and concern is genuine. I think urban, you know, the urban population, which even with the constraints, 60% you know, of Chinese people actually live in cities. And I think urban populations have become very concerned about air pollution, and water pollution. And obviously China is an authoritarian country, but it's also a big complicated place. There are plenty of local governments that actually survey their people you know, about public services and what they want done. And so I do think the Communist Party does respond to popular opinion to some extent. And I wouldn't want to exaggerate, but on an issue like environment, the smart thing is for the Communist Party to respond to that. Because oftentimes there's low-hanging fruit, you know, the, the health costs of the air pollution are very large and immediate. You know, so you can just make a simple economic case for a lot of improvements that would reduce air pollution in China. So I think, so I think a lot of that's genuine, the Communist Party responding to uh, you know, popular demand, particularly about the immediate environmental issues. So air pollution, water pollution. And, and the good news is a lot of environmental indicators are improving. There are independent measures of air quality. The US Embassy in Beijing, I don't know if it does anymore, but it used to put out regular data. So you, you've got independent data showing that things are improving. Yeah. Now carbon emission is related to that, but it is somewhat different. And there I was really pleased to see Xi Jinping make that pledge. And I think the Europeans put a lot of pressure on him. You know, the, let's face it, dealing with China is complicated. You've got terrible stuff happening in Xinjiang and Hong Kong. You know, I think the Europeans put a lot of pressure on China saying, you know, we would like to see improvements in human rights, but we're not holding our breath. Uh, but, you know, you could improve your image by taking a strong stand. Now, you, you know, Biden, Europe, Japan, I believe, have all pledged to get to carbon neutral by 2050. Mm. That may seem like a small difference, but it's actually a very big difference. Uh, if China were induced to move toward 2050, it would actually have to do, be doing a lot in the next five to 10 years. So the, again, the details of the five-year plan will be important. I mean, I think Xi Jinping chose his words carefully, saying, you know, you know, by no later than 2060. Mm. So I think it's a good area for international engagement. You know, I've subscribed to the view that if China really embraced this seriously, you know, took the 2050 target, that really would stimulate the growth of electric vehicles and all, you know, all kinds of innovation. I, you know, I forgot to mention that as a, <clears throat> one of the foundations of innovation would be to have clear incentives or targets for certain things of which carbon reduction would be the most obvious. So I, 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 I'm cautiously optimistic about the environmental situation. And I definitely think that's an area where advanced democracies like New Zealand and the United States, we can work with China on global climate change and maybe 
some success there aside from being good from the environment, maybe that creates a somewhat more cooperative environment for dealing with other thornier issues with China. Thank you. Um, I have a question on SOEs. Uh, Nicholas Lardy has argued that sustained emphasis on SOEs in the state sector risks acting as a drag on China's future economic growth. Is he right? Yes, <laughs> I, I agree with him about that. I, I, I can't remember if I mentioned, I should have mentioned in passing, you know, the SOEs are yeah, less productive than private enterprises in similar sectors. Uh, and I think the, I think I mentioned that, you know, the, the, the wrong way to go in the next five year plan would be picking some specific technologies and then subsidizing state enterprises to research them. And, and yeah, that's not likely to lead to prosperity. And, and it, it is tough, you know, I mean, in my heart, I really think they'd be much better off if they just privatized most of that. You know, I'm not ideological. You know, countries around Southeast Asia have some state enterprises. South Korea had the big steel firm. You know, I'm a little skeptical that's done all that much for them, but I'm not ideological about this. But when you have a significant number of state enterprises in lots of different commercial sectors, and they are demonstrably less efficient, getting a lot of resources, not contributing back that much, then the practical person to me says you should just privatize most of this. Hmm. And we have a, a question on, on Hong Kong. Um, so Hong Kong has played a very special role in the Chinese economy for many, many decades. Um, but obviously things have been changing over the last uh, few years. So is Hong Kong becoming, quote unquote, just another city in China? Um, or is it still going to play that important um, uh, gateway, both financially and in terms of um, in and out, uh, and in terms of Chinese companies? That's a very, very tough question. You know, I, th I think what we can be pretty confident about is that by the time you get to 2047, you know, which is the end of the 50 year period when there's supposed to be one country, two systems. By the time we get to 2047, it'll just be another Chinese city. Now, maybe by 2047, Chinese cities will have democratic rule and openness and property rights rule of law. You know, maybe China will be a really great place in 2047. Uh, but I think we can be pretty sure Hong Kong will not have much differentiation you know, legally in terms of regulation, probably wouldn't, won't have its own currency 30 years from now. And, and then the, what's difficult about your question is what, what's the path going to be like? Um, I think what, you know, what Beijing has done has undermined Hong Kong as a financial center, but we don't see banks shutting down and moving all their people out instantaneously, I think we'll see kind of slow erosion. And then a lot will depend on how Beijing handles it from here on out. I mean, they keep, we keep having, you know, the most recent thing was, you know, interfering in the local government. Um, I, I guess it's hard to be optimistic that Beijing is going to leave them much space. So I would, you know, I, I would think they would be slowly converging on the rest of China 
which in the next 10 years or so, you know, means clearly less freedom and you know, more control and losing kind of their special status. Thank you. Uh, and I have a, a question on, I guess, uh, sort of two parts to it. There's both the US part and the China part. Uh, so on the China part, we had a talk um, yes, yesterday by Xu Qiyuan uh, from Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, and he was explaining dual circulation. And part of the rationalization that he gave for the dual circulation idea was to create more domestic resilience uh, in the face of potential or real uh, external shocks in certain sectors, such as through the US-China trade war. Um, so there is China decoupling. And then on the US side, with the new Biden administration, um, are we likely to see uh, sort of this continuing debate about decoupling or partial decoupling or move back to some kind of complex inter interdependency between these two very significant economies? So on the second part of that, I think it's unlikely Biden and his team will use this decoupling rhetoric. You know, I think they'll want to distinguish themselves from Trump. So they'll try to carve out a space of being you know, tough on China, on national security, human rights, and technology issues. Mm. I mean, I think Biden's been pretty clear about this. So we ought to be able to work together on climate change and global pandemics what I think of as global public goods, so that's mutually beneficial. We're gonna have confrontation, you know, maybe confrontation is too strong a word, but we're not gonna get along on human rights and security issues. And then economics potentially could be win-win if there's a more level playing field. So I think they'll stay away from that decoupling rhetoric uh, because they haven't given up hope of building a better economic relationship but they don't want to be perceived as naive about that. And they're not, they're not anxious that they have to get some agreement with China. Uh, I think they're willing to let that sit there for a while. On the first point, you know, I understand the Chinese are, you know, it's, it's caught the Chinese attention, uh, you know, what the U.S. has done on some of these technology areas like export control on semiconductors. Um, yeah. So I think that to me, the rational Chinese response would be, on the one hand, you might want to look at, are there some of your own behaviors in terms of cyber theft and, and IPR protection where the rational thing would be for China to improve so you don't have such tension because that actually would be good for China. And then secondly, I know they're, you know, they're not going to assume that the United States is going to be completely rational, uh, but there are other suppliers of technology. You know? so. They're working on an investment treaty with Europe. To me, the smart thing would be to open up the economy more and perhaps focus more on Europe or other Asian partners. RCEP is an example of that. You know, because the United States has poked you, I don't think it's a rational response to turn inward. Thank you to Professor Dollar for joining the New Zealand Contemporary China Research Center lecture series. I would like to encourage you all to take a listen to Brookings Institute's excellent podcast series, Dollar and Cents, where David and guests explain how our global trading system is built and its effect on our everyday lives. You can check out more New Zealand China Council podcasts by visiting the Council's website.
www.nzchinacouncil.org.nz or listen on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.